This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to our latest special podcast. Filling your summer football void... This week we have a debutant on the pod, author John Leonard, and he joined me to talk about an era that brought the club arguably its most successful times, the Tony Waddington years. Yes, so welcome to every step along the way to John Leonard. Welcome, John. First time appearance on the podcast. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. Yes, thanks. Uh, just to give a plug to Tony Warrington, director of a working man's ballet, that was uh, uh, one of my stoke books. And uh, Flight to Bagotor, which was uh, England's greatest football rebel, I, I called him, and Neil Franklin. And uh, which I'm glad to say uh, um, was nominated for awards, even, which was quite nice. But uh, I prefer the Tony Warrington book, to be honest, and I'm just going <laughs> to pick my own. But uh, although Franklin was a fascinating project, it was something that other fans uh, persuaded me to try and do because everybody of my age and generation obviously appreciated Tony Warrington, but Franklin was somebody that uh, uh, parents' generation, not mine, because my, my parents weren't from the, the Potteries area, the, the, the Irish, you know, so <laughs> my dad's case knew little about football. It was hurling was his sport. But, yeah, the Franklin was... Uh, Almost regarded him higher, I'd say, in, in some cases, than Stanley Matthews. So I did that. I did those two biographies, and uh, as I say, I preferred, out of own personal bias, uh, Tony Warrington recalling what happened, the good times, and uh, sadly, in one instance in '77, the bad times. But uh, generally, uh, an underrated manager, I'd say. Uh, in the football world generally, not obviously by Stoke fans, and not including uh, current Stoke fans, you know, because they hear of the legend of, of Waddo, who uh, fortunately people of my generation not only fortunate to see in action, but also meet as well and chat to occasionally. So it, 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 it was great to actually go ahead and write something down because nothing had actually been written specifically about uh, Tony Warrington uh, on, until then. Alan Hudson had written a, a book, a, a loving tone to Water, which I, I believe that Al's going to release again in January. I think, I'm not sure he's going to do that in paperback or or uh, hardback. I'm told by his agent he plans to do that. So uh, look forward to doing that and uh, to, to reading that and uh, uh, just see what he, he, he makes looking back nearly 50 years now uh, uh, to, to that time in Stokes, Stokes history. It's a testament to, to Tony himself that 
you know, player like Alan Hudson, who's you know, still described by many Stoke fans of that era as the greatest person they've ever seen pull on the shirt. You know, the most skillful player and that, and, and he holds, say, what Tony wanted in such high regard. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would class uh, Alan Hudson as the best player I've seen in the red, in the red and white stripes. And my, our first game, it was 66. I can mean, just about remember the World Cup final, let alone go to Stoke. So, uh, and since then, I mean, there have been players who've excited and players who've come close. But I don't think even in the Premier League era, in that decade we were in the Premier League, there was anybody quite as, certainly not as charismatic, but in terms of talent either, not quite just there. And uh, and we had some decent players, you know, Shakiri and Antonsi, uh, and, and even Anatovic, when he could be bothered. So, so uh, there, were, there were great players, no, none of them really in uh, Alan's class. And also... That team of the 1970s, there were some damn good players actually, you know, and uh, they were they were good, but still uh, not again, not quite, not quite a uh, to Alan's class, and and I think they even now they'd, they'd recognise that they're different types of players. Of course, you can't compare Dennis Smith with or Alan Law with Alan Hudson, the midfielder, not even Terry Conroy on the wing. So you know, it, it, it's it's a team sport, and uh, individuals do matter in a team sport, but. Uh, Alan Hudson stood out. Yeah, he, he definitely did. And I mean, you mentioned before about that sort of obviously Tony Waddington and, and how he was undervalued, maybe underappreciated in the wider footballing world. Do you think that is because he was with Unfashionable Stoke, as they pretty much always have been? I think there are a couple of reasons. Yes, you're right. It's because of Unfashionable Stoke. But then again, Derby County at the time were unfashionable. So. Uh, but it had a again. I, I described Alan Hudson as a player as charismatic. There's no doubt that Cluffy was charismatic. He was a great friend, of course, of Waters. And there were other <coughs> managers who liked to be on the telly, <laughs> to, to put it bluntly. And uh, Tony Waters wasn't one of those characters. He was a great public relations operator. I thought you know he was able to garner publicity f- for the club to get the crowds in, garner publicity locally to get the crowds in, either using the particularly using the Sentinel, also to a lesser extent Radio Stoke back in the day. But he didn't, he, you know, he didn't, he didn't make himself available for World Cup uh, panels, and, and they didn't really start until, until about 1970 uh, at the Mexico World Cup. But when they did start, people like uh, Clough. Uh, Sean, and, and not just that, but there were very strong characters. Bill Shankly being an obvious candidate, and then going back even further to uh, Matt Busby, who was again a, a well, I wouldn't say a friend of uh, uh, Waters, but uh, uh, Tony Warrington was a Busby babe. He uh, began his football career at Manchester United, and so the pair were close, there's no doubt about that. And there's no doubt that uh, Matt Busby helped him, but in terms of international recognition or never mind international recognition I think because of his personality it was it was a quieter personality than, than some of his uh, contemporaries and I, I think that's the reason why he didn't get noticed whereas maybe managers like Malcolm Allison who was, who was nowhere near as good a manager as uh, Watto did get noticed so but that's one of those things yeah indeed like I said I mean that sort of does, does sort of come into the modern day as well don't you? you'll see certain managers on TV and things like that, I like say putting themselves out in the media, and then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, a job comes up and and they are there. I suppose it's put. I say if you if they 
putting themselves out there a bit more so it does keep them in people's eyes a bit more doesn't it and gets people a bit more familiar with them on a personal level as well so yeah, that, yeah that's, that's, Terry Pulis is, is quite a curious one in that respect because until Stoke were promoted to the Premier League no, unless you're a Gillingham fan or, or Portsmouth or Bournemouth you, you wouldn't know much about uh, uh, Tony Pulis but he, he did get he did get recognised in the Premier League era. I think it helps these days with social media too. There's so yeah. many more outlets. Back in the 60s, 70s, uh, National Football Radio Station was radio, well, radio too, but only then, of course, only on a Saturday afternoon. And on TV, there was no wall-to-wall television uh, live uh, matches in those days. There was only the FA Cup final and the England-Scotland International and a European Cup final occasionally, especially if a British team got to the final. But no, there wasn't the type of coverage. There wasn't the type of scrutiny you get today. And in what was a fairly small small field, uh, Tony Warrington, uh, I won't say step back, but he he, uh, he allowed other more noisy characters, let's say, to uh, uh, hog the limelight. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you mentioned before that he was a Busby babe as well. Obviously, uh, coming through at Manchester United, he was born in Manchester on the ninth of November, nineteen twenty-four. Um, Winkhoff served with the Navy during the war and then ended up at Crew at the end of the Second World War. Yeah, the uh, Crew was a. Uh, uh, it was an, an accident more than anything else. It's it that uh, Busby told him he really had no future at Manchester United. He were a first division team with uh, higher ambitions. Busby already had his eye on. Uh, European competition there were, before before the European Cup came along there was a thing called the Metropa uh, Cup which was quite uh, big uh, pre-war and uh, Britain none of the English the, none of the British associations were part of it because uh, they weren't part of FIFA and UEFA didn't, didn't want them involved but when it became clear that a new competition was, was on its way Busby and Cullis were keener on that what a he was injured during the war. It, it was not even in, in, in combat. It was a, a, an accident, and uh, that's how his leg was injured. But uh, an opportunity came up at Crew, and uh, Busby <coughs> agreed to let him go. He didn't think he'd, he'd stay play with there very long, and he didn't actually. But he he'd retired by the time he was in his late twenties. So uh, you know, he then transferred. To, to coaching, to uh, eventually to football management, and again, I think Busby was quite influential there because he was he was the ideal man to give one of the tips he needed. Yeah, and like I said, then he initially joined Stoke as a coach, didn't he, in 1952, and then sort of moved his way up to assistant manager to Frank Taylor. He actually took over as caretaker in the late 50s. Uh, Frank Taylor was taken ill, uh, and the next time he took over for good was when again Frank Taylor was taken ill, and. Uh, Tony Warrington felt a bit of guilt about that because the Stoke board decided it was it was time for Frank Taylor to go and for a, a new young manager to take over. Uh, sensible move to make, but uh, I think a lot of fans at the time thought that Frank Taylor was a little harshly done by. The Stoke were bombing along in the second division. They had lost form. Uh, they weren't... <coughs> They weren't in, uh, playing as badly as maybe the modern day Stoke have been doing in the second <laughs> period, but it, it was the, it was the signs were that they needed a revamp and uh, a push, and uh, Tony Warrington was the man to give him the push. 
Yeah, because obviously when he first came in as well, I think the first thing he had to do was sort of keep them up, wasn't it, as well? They were in danger of dropping down into the third tier, weren't they, initially? Yes, I mean, there was, they, 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 they were struggling. He didn't, he didn't quite have the players he needed. But his way to get around that was to... Uh, sign the, the veteran players because in those days uh, footballers were not given as long as life as today and now there may be lots of reasons for that for uh, athleticism wasn't as well rewarded uh, back then as it is now medical care medical care was nowhere near as good the, the conditioning and physio work again nowhere near as good so a lot of players were finished but by the time they were 30 Warren didn't think so he, he won he saw value in in, in 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 players, and he wanted to prolong their careers. So, if if one of the more experienced players came onto the market, he'd step in and and, and he'd, he'd grab them. And I'm thinking off the top of my head, in particular, of Dennis Wilshaw, who played for England, uh, won the cup and the league with Wolves, but still lived at Stoke on Trent. It's hard to believe now, but a lot of professional footballers back then were part time. Wilshaw was one of them. Wilshaw was a school teacher in Stoke, and the, the great added in, uh, bonus for, for Warrington was that uh, he was able to take charge of the Stoke on Trent schools football team. And of course, there in that position, he was he was the ideal scout. And so, so it's not just Wilshaw, but other players he brought in. Most famously, obviously, Stanley Matthews brought him back to, uh, to Stoke City. Uh, but he was able to slowly but surely re- rebuild the club. The one thing he did do, though, was to make sure he had the soundest defence. He bought a goalkeeper from Everton, O'Neill, Jimmy O'Neill, uh, who was an Irish international at the time, uh, for a relatively cheap sum to play second division football. And O'Neill remained his goalkeeper until promotion, until after promotion. And he he bought in again from Wolves, he bought in Stewart, the, he was Wolves captain for a while, a South African player, a strong player in the centre of defence. And so built from, he began building his first Waddows wall. And, and that, that was important. Yeah, I mean, he mentioned Stanley Matthews as well then. And I think it shows what a shrewd business brain he had as well as a footballing one in that... Tony knew that he needed to he needed more funds into the club, needed more money coming in. And so he went out and brought Stanley Matthews back at forty six, knowing that he would repay that transfer fee in a single game and near enough on the gate receipts alone. And he yeah. just sort of built some momentum, didn't it? And gave the then obviously that then brought the funds into the club that you could then use to bring in other players. As a really, like I say, more than just a football manager at the time, there's like I say, true business. Well, I think credit has to go to Albert Henshaw as well, who was, who was the chairman uh, who took over in the early 60s and became his great friend, his, his great buddy. I think he, he helped that. But you, you're right, uh, Warrington always took an interest in how the club was run financially and so uh, did, uh, uh, yeah, had an eye for bringing in the crowds, for doing stuff like, you know, a lottery and stuff like that, which other, very few other clubs were doing. He picked the idea of Stockport counties, counties. It wasn't his own idea, but he, he saw other ways of creating revenue for the football club rather than just getting uh, fans to go through the turnstiles. So he, he was a very shrewd operator. And as you say, it did help him to, to, to bring in other players, having Matthews there, so he could bring in uh, Jimmy McElroy from Burnley, who fell out of favour with Bob Lord, the uh, infamous chairman there. And 
players like Roy Vernon as well. So, you know, you know top class players, top class internationals, as, as both McElroy and Vernon were McElroy with Ireland and uh, Northern Ireland as it became uh, in the 50s. And then uh, uh, Vernon with Wales. Was it ever sort of realised how we managed to get those kind of players to step down then into like the second tier at the time? Well, it was it was not so difficult because there wasn't that much of a difference in terms of wages. Uh, yeah. He started off, don't forget, just after, well, during the period the maximum wage was abolished. And so, you know, these, these were players who... Uh, looked upon us past their sell-by dates and weren't guaranteed first-team chances at their clubs. You know, I mentioned O'Neill at Everton. He, you know, he he lost his place as a goalkeeper there. Yeah. <laughs> There's only one place, obviously, for the goalie. And, was, and, and, and the same was true of McElroy, who only just a year after Burnley won the league. He, he fell out spectacularly, not with the manager, but with with the chairman. And so uh, the manager wasn't able to pick him. You know, there were daft things going on that, which daft things still go on now, that one yeah. was able to take advantage of. Yeah, yes, daft things certainly do go on in football still, don't they? <laughs> um, I mean, yes, so we've, we've, he's, like I say, he's building the, the Waddows wall, Waddington's wall. Um, and that sort of became quite a quite a big feature, didn't it? Of sort of being re- that was the first time you start, Stoke started being recognised or something. It was it was sort of a phrase coined once around that that we were this solid defence and we were building from that. I mean, did it go down well with the fans? That sort of style of play. Uh, well, I, I could only think really more openly to the to the seventies and. Uh... And you know, the answer to that is yes. Uh, in the late sixties, as I remember, as a as a young child, it's, I didn't personally take a lot of notice of what fans around me were saying or doing. I just wanted to watch the football, and you know, you hear yeah. comments uh, were being made, and it, it was a matter of whether Stoke were doing well or, or doing badly. I mean, in the late sixties, the, the key signing then was Gordon Banks, of course, and you know, you don't normally go to watch to see a goalkeeper, but in, in, in the potteries, we know we were a small industrial city uh, in the Midlands, and suddenly the world's best goalkeeper was playing for our football club. You know, <laughs> that was that was something in itself. It was quite it was quite an attraction, and and so I think the fans knew the importance of defence and knew that there were good players in front of the defence. I mean, Peter Dobing came along, who was a superb player, and. You know, and people like Harry Burrows on the wing and Terry Connery, who's a young man, joined the club. And so, so you, I think the fans could see the slow build. There were a couple of dodgy seasons. There were a couple of times they just about avoided relegation. Even after winning the League Cup in '72, they they nearly went down the next season, but uh, went on a great run towards the end of the season and, and, and stayed up. So, I don't think the fans, when it came to Wado, were fickle until that fateful 76-77 season when, sadly, the club eventually went down. Yeah, do, do you think as well that, like, as he got into the 70s, the style with the introduction of people like Hudson that became more expansive and more attack-minded? Or more? 
I think he always had an eye for the attack. I think he, you know, as a player, maybe John Ritchie. Or, his biggest mistake was selling John Ritchie, and then a year later he bought he bought him back. You know, because <laughs> Ritchie didn't really settle at Sheffield Wednesday, and uh, it was quite keen when the offer came to come back. He he was quite keen to go back to Stoke. I think you know he he had an eye for a striker. He had an eye. He had a simple way of playing football. He, it was it was a question of telling the younger lad, you know, lads like. Dennis Smith and Dennis will tell you, you know, and Alan Blow, both me and lads the same as myself. And uh, you, know, you, you win the ball and then you give it to somebody who can play you. Alan Hudson being the key, but out to the wing Terry, to Terry Conroy. And it was the same, but also with you know, John, John Mahoney was part of that late 60s team as well. You know. but, not a player with the, the obvious skills of Alan Hudson, but still a useful footballer. You know, he, he was, you know, he, 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 he he was a, an international, Welsh international, and a, a, a decent player. So, so, th- so it was that theory of winning the ball, keeping the keeping the back solid, and then allowing the the better players the freedom to to, to play uh, up front, and that's that's what he, he always did. And he, he also he liked wingers. I mean, he, that was it. That was a key thing. I mean, that's why he bought Jeff Sabins in, in the uh, in the seventies. He liked to have that width. That's why he had Harry Burrows from Aston Villa earlier on, and, and it's why he was so delighted with uh, Terry Conroy's progress after signing him from Glentor in, in Northern Ireland. Yeah, he, he he liked these these players who'd. Almost were a throwback in some ways to the teams of the thirties and forties and fifties, but we're getting that now. We, we, we know wing play is, is in the last decade or so is is proving uh, well maybe more than that. You know, thinking back to gigs in the nineties, you know, it's proving a, a major feature of, of football. And football varies, tactics vary. And I think Warrington recognised that. He knew that, as, as did many of the other managers at the time, and uh, was able to adapt. Yeah, because I think like a, a modern winger a lot of the time won't play with the sort of chalk on the boots that uh, that Ryan Giggs would or, or, the, or um, in the 90s. Like I said, he sort of plays more in field a little bit, don't he? Like you say, tactics sort of alter as you go along. Um, and sort of tactically, I know we were, like I say, you mentioned sort of Hudson back then again. We spoke to Eric Skeels on this podcast. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, he said he was very good friends with, with Alan, but he says his tactics, for, the instruction he had would have been get the ball. And like you say, get the ball and give it to Alan. And that was pretty much what he was told to do. And like I say, it goes with what you were saying of. Well, Eric you know, lost his head in those days. So, yeah, because he was, especially later in his career, he did, uh, he, you know, he filled in for either. Alan uh, or he can fill it at fullback. He was a very versatile player, he was a great player. Yeah, obviously um, nearly 600 appearances, which is amazing. Um, looking, obviously, we, we um, go back to the, the sort of the timeline of uh, we bought Stanley Matthews in, we've got some money in building so Warrington's War, and promotion followed as champions in 62-63. Um, obviously, second division champions, which is something... Again, that we haven't really you know, winning the second tier is something that's a rarity to this football club, isn't it? Even when we got promotion, since a lot of the time it's come as like runners up or, or whatever. So it was a, a good and big achievement um, to, to obviously win that in the sixty-two. Yeah, at the time. But the um, after promotion in sixty-three, they then broke the club record to get Peter Dobin in, and um, obviously, obviously John Ritchie coming from Kettering. 
they, uh, as I say, John Ritchie was uh, came and went, and thankfully came back again. Peter Dobing was always a constant. I mean, he was a well-established uh, at Blackburn Rovers. Ought to have played for England, really. A uh, superb player, but uh, never quite got his chance. The other player, the key player he brought in in the in the 60s was uh, George Eastham. And, and George Eastham was quite pivotal in bringing in uh, Gordon Banks to the football club because they were they were friends from their days together uh, on England duty. Eastham was part of the England World Cup squad in 66. So, 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 so good friends. And Dobing in particular, I, I remember... As, as I mentioned, uh, my old man didn't. He was more for hurling fan in Ireland than, uh, than football. But he'd, he'd go along to see Stoke regularly and him with a few friends. And there's one match against Leeds United they played, which they won three two, which kept him kept him up in, in the in the early sixties after the promotion. And Dobie that day scored a hat trick and played an absolute blinder. And I think from that that day onwards, there was even the even the more fickle Stoke fans recognised him to be uh, a great player, and uh, he, he was very much loved at the club right through to lift, lifting the League Cup for us, of course, in '72. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't even the first League Cup final we got to, there was it with with one with Terry Warrington. I mean, it, I think it's for me it's quite forgotten by a lot of Stoke fans or not known even by quite a few like um, younger Stoke fans about the 60-63-64 League Cup final that we got to and obviously it was defeated by Leicester over two legs ironically the one they had Gordon Banks in goal <laughs> um, yeah well I think I think it's because uh, it wasn't played at Wembley in those days and the first I think the 67 was the first Wembley Cup final when QPR won but it, it wasn't such a big day. It was a relatively new competition. It was, you know, it all it, it was a bit a bit of an, a, a, a novelty, wasn't it? Considered a major trophy that came in the later sixties. So I suppose that's why there's a failure maybe to to, to recognise uh, the match. There's also frustration, frustration I think, on, on the part of Warro and the players that. Uh, the, they didn't do any better, you know. Gordon Banks wrote about it extensively in his in his biography, and uh, he looked back on it fondly because he, he never, you know, he'd, he'd he'd lost two finals, two Wembley finals with FA Cup finals with Leicester City uh, when Spurs won the double in '61. And to him, it was uh, it was an important break. But Stoke were unlucky in the in those two matches, but it wasn't to be. And I do remember in the mid '90s. Playing, they played Leicester City again in the, in the playoffs, didn't they? And uh, again, lost over the two legs. And as long as the competition is still going, I don't know what's going to happen in the next four or five years, but we'll see. Yeah, I think uh, it's a shame that it seems to be dictated to by the uh, the how shall we say the, the big the big six as they like to be known seem to di- try and dictate what everyone else does, don't they? At the minute in football. Yeah, well, the curious thing about the big six, I remember doing stories of them for the BBC and then I, then ITN uh, in the late eighties and early nineties, and that big six didn't include Chelsea, for example, didn't include Manchester City. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's you know, it was the big six were Arsenal's uh, big five actually. It tended to be it was the Merseyside clubs, Liverpool uh, and Everton. Man United and then uh, the North London clubs, uh, Arsenal and Spurs. No, no, nobody else was considered as, as as one of the the top clubs. But the gap back there was nowhere near as wide as as it, 
as it is today. You know, the, the Premier League is almost uh, it's two offs the table. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's getting a bit silly, and there's the gap. I think is closing between the Championship and uh, the, the uh, bottom half of the Premier League, if anything. But uh, well, the, the top half keep uh, easing away. Although, having said that, you know, West Ham did well uh, season back or so, got into Europe, and then playing in Europe and playing in the Premier League struggled uh, through the season, stayed up eventually comfortably. But it just shows that. You know, you 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 need all your players on their metal, and you you know you you, you can't actually fill the calendar or overfill the calendar because uh, the lesser clubs will will, uh, will will suffer. I think as a result as a result, might be an unfair assessment, but I think it's I think it's a, it's a fairly valid one given uh, watching events unfold. Yeah, I think even like going a bit off topic for what we were here today but I think even like the financial fair play rules are set up for the bigger clubs aren't they I mean Leicester sort of proves that in point that for a long time they've sort of spent to try and keep themselves as a European sort of spot around that sort of top you know 6th 7th in the league dropped away from that for a couple of seasons yes, and then so obviously last season straight, away, eventually yeah. catches up with them you're spending I, I think with Leicester, they just did not see the relegation coming. And to an extent, going back to Wado, uh, when eventually Stoke went down, I don't think Wado and the board saw it coming then. I think it applies to lots of football clubs in lots of circumstances. But fortunately, you know, when when he was building teams and then rebuilding teams, he didn't have to worry about that. He didn't, and he he built a diff, he built his team to get promoted. He kept some players on and the younger players were able to stay on, like Eric Skills. Tony Allen stayed on until the late 60s. You know, he, but he was able to rebuild the team, get it going, and, and then build effectively what was a good cup team, the team that won the League Cup and got to Cup semi-finals, but then rebuild the team again and build, build a team that nearly won the league. And that, to me, that was really impressive. It was, it was reinventing the football team, the football club all the time. That team there, I mean, it would have had like, you know, George Easterman, it wasn't it, Gordon Banks, who he'd brought in, like say, Dobin, um, uh, Richie would have been back then, wouldn't he, as well. Um, but then also, we sort of touched on earlier on, you've got Alan Dodd, Danny Smith, Mike Pedgy, Jackie Marsh, Alan Blow, all sort of local players brought, who've sort of been picked up and around. And I mean, does that, was it, were they sort of all sort of young young and coming through together or would they sort of gradually one at a time come into the side uh, I think well Anna Dodd was a lot later than uh, Dennis Smith I think in the late 60s Dennis came into the side he came he came along with Jackie Marsh Mike Pedrick was a, again a slightly later generation they were roughly the same time yeah Pedrick was a bit younger than yeah. Marsh and Alan Bloor as I say uh came in about the same time he was mates from school with uh, Dennis Smith you know they, the, the pair knew each other quite well had probably helped their understanding of the football pitch and so yes it, yeah and I think I think it helps them to, to gel uh, on the field but also given that the, the Stoke had these identifiable players who were local lads that warmed the team to the fans, the fans enjoyed having 
one of their own, if you will, or, f- or several of their own. I mean, it's great to have the world's greatest goalkeeper, but he was from Sheffield <laughs> over the Pennines. <laughs> uh, he was. It, 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 it was even better to have uh, the defence in front of him. Hit the water wall that what was wall that uh, Gordon Banks had. That was they were all local lads, not just the, the back four who played in the League Cup final uh, of uh, Pedrick Marsh. Blore and Smith, but also uh, Eric Skills, who filled in as I say from time to time. Alan Dodd, the young player, coming through, and so and so there was and players like later like Danny Bowers. They, 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 they were young lads, and they were they, they were people that many of the fans knew, many of the fans grew up with, and so uh, were quite happy to go along to Victoria Ground and, and cheer their on. Not that they didn't give support, obviously, to the others, but there is that connection, there's that community connection. And I think that, I think totally, maybe we're losing that at the moment in, the, in, in, in football, but I think it's still strong. And it's, I think, and I, and I, and I think it, back then it was it was very important. And I, I, and I don't think it's something that the, the sport ought to give up on. Yeah, I think as well. It, like I say today, if 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 you do get a say, younger player coming through, you don't generally get um, a, a batch studio in one go. But I think if you do, like Stoke has sort of got a, a few coming through at the minute, haven't they? Um, you yeah, know, so. Nathan Gal and Nathan Lowe, and I think it does. It means it, it, it's even more sort of even more special at the minute, in that because it's so rare now, isn't it? It's. You say you've got a sort of multinational sides in the championship, let alone the Premier League. You know, coming from all you know, all, all four corners of the world, kind of thing. So to have somebody from your own doorstep make it through into that into a team is is so special. Yeah, that's why Tom Edwards was so popular at the club. He's not the best right back I've seen play, but he was he was a Stafford lad. You know, he was a local lad. You know, same with Wilco, yeah. of course. Uh, you know, from Stone. So it, it, it does help, and it does. It does help to bring the fans together, and uh, and they'll they'll obviously warm to such, such, such a player. You bet. You said before as well that we were quite built sort of a cup side. Um, did he sort of have aspirations to win the league eventually? But maybe saw that this would that was the first step to get into that. You had to be. It was it was a bit like a building block. Get success there and move forward from that. I think. It, he definitely had his eye on Stoke winning the league. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Uh, quite what order it came in, I don't think he was too bothered about. And it helped that Stoke were a good cup side. It helped that it bred confidence in the squad, in the team. And there was a certainly a great deal of confidence, as I say. Um, but the, 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 what what that 72 73 season showed was that uh, he needed to needed to strengthen it and I mean, you know, to, to actually play consistently it's 42 games a season back then uh, he needed extra players he needed the top the, the top players he had a great goalkeeper he had a, a great set of defenders uh, but uh, the lads in front of them struggled a bit, uh, but he managed what wanted to manage to do uh, after winning the League Cup, and that was without question the, the greatest moment of the club's history. The great, greatest. I, mean, I was lucky enough, obviously, to witness it. But, but he, he, to, 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 to go on from there. To, to, to challenge for the title, let alone win the title, he, he needed to change the team, and he did that. He did. Just uh, sadly, other uh, events intervened, and Stoke never, never quite uh, uh, 
won the title. It was, uh, there was always a talk of uh, the 1940s, the late 40s under McGrory when Stoke came so close and sold Stanley Matthews with about six weeks of the season left. You know, and I, I remember the older fans still grumbling about that. You know, Matthews was brought back by Warrington as the prodigal son and, and all the rest of it. But there were not every Stoke fan was that keen to see him because they never forgave him for leaving in the first place. Yeah, and so, and so when the 70s chance came round, there was a, a, an understandable degree of frustration at how close they came. It wasn't he? I mean, you could call that a self-sabotage a bit, couldn't you? They let, let anyone leave so soon, to the end, so close to the end of the season. But it didn't seem to be... That wasn't That's the last time sort of, you know, things have sort of gone against Stoke and that, I mean... Yeah, that things... I mean, have you, have you ever known a ice cream seller get... Play a person that's play somebody onside. <laughs> it was clearly offside in an FA Cup semi final. Well, the most curious thing about that is that it gets mentioned to me. I live I live down in London now, and a lot of the people and friends of mine around here, colleagues and that, support different football clubs. But even the younger fans tend to know the the ice cream seller or the program seller, especially Evertonians. <laughs> they won't they won't let you hear the last of it, and the Arsenal fans are rather sheepish about it. So no, is <laughs> a short answer, but it, it's our piece of unwanted uh, football folklore, I'm afraid. <laughs> but it, it and it wasn't just that as well. That 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 semi final in seventy two hurt. They had a chance to go on and win the FA Cup and League Cup double and I don't think many teams have done it since, if any. Uh, and there was a the ball was about two yards over the line, a photograph of it what it was put up in the dressing room wall to motivate the players for the for their future games. It, it was it, Stoke were robbed in that game and says so, 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 so he is unbiased opinion. Uh, and, and the previous year with the um, at Hillsborough, the semi-final there, where four minutes of added time were, were put on the watch when teams, the football there, unless there was a, a long injury, it rarely went beyond more than a minute or two. And uh, there was a foul, I think, on Banks. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was... Those cup, FA Cup runs were deeply frustrating, but it, it, the... Uh, Winning the League Cup put that. Uh, I think the fan, fans at the time, certainly me as a fan, everybody was able to put that behind them, and I think the players were, were able to 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 do all also. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. We've got that, I say we've got the, the high screen seller, we've got Stanley, Stanley Matthews. And then obviously tragically after this ends, just when we think you know, we can kick on from this League Cup win and really sort of like say we're, we're challenging at the top end of the league. He decides you know, the one to one those walls in place. He can really build the final pieces. And Gordon Banks tragically goes and sort of loses his eye in an accident. 
how did Wellington ever talk about that? And and obviously as a how it affected him, how it affected the group at that time. Uh, not really, no. He, uh, he in Banks, obviously, he had to talk. He had to. In Banks' car crash was the lead item on, on television, uh, national television news. It was on a Sunday afternoon, and that, that evening, the BBC News and ITN uh, led on. Uh, on Banks's car crash and this career ending because it wasn't just a big blow for Stoke City it was a massive blow for England too it's uh, I don't wish to be rude about Peter Shilton but as it's Banks's successor it was a great signing for Stoke at, at first at least it seems so but it, we, we didn't really need a goalkeeper we had uh, John Farmer who was a decent enough goalkeeper and uh, what, what we needed was to, to keep going on Banks uh, unfortunately Banksy uh, had to uh, retire as a player and uh, went on to the coaching staff. And to make matters worse, when he, he started on the coaching staff, there wasn't. He suddenly discovered there wasn't a backup goalkeeper because John Farmer became so disillusioned that he, he he'd actually left uh, for a while. Uh, he did come back, and I think when he came back, he was injured. So <clears throat> there were no other goal, no other goalkeepers for uh, Banksy to uh, to coach. So that, it, it, it was definitely a, a huge setback for the team. And I say seventy two, seventy three seasons. It was no coincidence that the uh, the football club uh, struggled until the end of the season, where they went on, on, on a good run. And they, and they did. They did recover. They recovered as a squad. Uh, they, they stayed up. And the next season, it was the season that Alan Hudson came along in, in January of that year. And again, they went on another good run, and, and ended up in Europe. And suddenly, I think what dawned on him, it dawned on the fans that uh, Stoke had a, a, t- a team that, that could, could challenge not just for cups, but for the uh, but for the title. I mean, we, we've we've touched on we've talked about Alan Hudson already, haven't we? And you mentioned Peter Shelton there. I mean, Jeff Hurst also came in around that time, didn't he, to sort of provide the goals up front, um, sort of replacing yeah, so sort of John Rich, John Ritchie sort of sort of falling out now. Well, one or two later years, he did an interview series with Peter Hewitt, and he denied that was the case. He wanted, he said, he wanted uh, Ritchie and Hurst to play together. You know, uh, both were coming towards the end of their careers, and he he he, and he, he felt that uh, they they couldn't dovetail together. Unfortunately, John Ritchie had suffered a really horrific uh, leg injury, and so uh, uh, retired, quit or quit the game uh, earlier than uh, anticipated. I mean, he 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 broke his leg, I think, away at Ipswich. And that was a massive blow. And that, that was the 74 75 uh, season when Stoke challenged for the title. And Jeff Hurst uh, was very much a part of that team, even though Hurst himself, I mean, it was nearly 10 years since the World Cup uh, uh, hat trick at Wembley for him. And he was definitely coming towards the end of his career, but was stayed on. I think if Richie was there, but, it, but that. that 74-75 season was full of ifs and buts for Stoke City. It was, it was a season that there were four or five broken legs. Uh, Pejic, uh, Dennis Smith, I think twice he broke he, he broke his arm, broke a leg, and Jimmy Greenoff, of course, also uh, suffered a, a horrific injury. So it was, it, it was one of those seasons you just knew was it. Is it, is it progress that it it wasn't going to be Stokes Stokes year 
the irony was, the strange thing was that a lot of people on YouTube like to see the baseball ground match between Stoke and Derby County, uh, which Stoke won to Stoke won top of the ten, top of the league. And people thought, oh, "I go to win the league," and then they, they played at home to Ipswich, lost badly. One of the can't which player was was. Uh, Got carried off for Stoke players, but the, the, these these injuries mounted up. And in those days, there weren't big squads. Stoke had a, a first team squad of at the outside sixteen to eighteen players, and, and those who wouldn't be in the in either the starting level or maybe the first or thirteen probably weren't weren't were, were, were good enough. So there was a lot of bad luck in that season, and uh, unfortunately, more bad luck to follow for the football club. Sort of rounding off the the bad luck of. of the fourth event was obviously the Butler Street stand blew down um, I know people by the players sort of quotes and stuff is that you know literally didn't know they just storm had hit anti overnight and they're just driving past the ground and someone spotted that there's, there's no roof on the stand yeah what happened was it was a New Year's Day uh, start, uh, stall and uh the uh, roof, uh, part of the roof was blown away, and they brought in the builders to uh, repair it to carry out uh, emergency uh, repairs. That weekend, they were due to play Spurs away in the FA Cup, and that game, of course, went ahead. Uh, but on the day before the game, before they left for London, uh, one who recalled how they heard this almighty crash, and of course, that was when the uh, the whole middle uh, part of the of the stand the stand roof fell in. A builder was injured. They were lucky. There weren't uh, anything anything more serious. Probably, you know, maybe even fatalities, but there wasn't. So, a bit lucky in that regard. Uh, but the thing was that it soon became clear. The worst thing that you know, I think, Dennis Smith. I recall this quite well. He, you know, he's, it was only maybe a week or so later that they found out that it wasn't insured. It, it's going to cause real financial problems for the club. And that was January '76. And by the next season, they started to find sale of players. Uh, Ian Moores left at the start of the '76-'77 season. Ian was a, a young striker from the area that had come through, uh, well liked by the fans. Spurs came in, ironically enough, uh, uh, with, 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 with a bid for him uh, and sold him to Spurs for £100,000. Uh, and he was just the first. But the, I suppose of that season, as, as a result of the need to make money, the, the biggest loss was Jimmy Greave. Jimmy, Jimmy Greaves. Jimmy Greenoff to uh, Manchester United. Everton had put a bid in for him. And, and uh, wanted to intervene to that and said that if well if, if he was going to go he wasn't going to go to Everton and he did phone up uh, uh, Matt Busby Busby wasn't the Manchester United manager at the time of course it was uh, Tommy Doherty but uh, Busby uh, facilitated it and uh, a, a, a fee was agreed with, with Tommy Doherty and uh, that was it. Uh, Greenoff was taken to the middle of the pitch by Wellington and told him that he was going. He actually, I think the quote was that he said, uh, to, I'm going to have to sell players. And he said, oh, that's a pity. You're going to sell. Well, for, and he said, well, starting with you, Jimmy. And Greenoff was quite shattered by that because he was a Yorkshire lad. He, he wasn't from the Potteries. You know, he began his career at Leeds United. He won the League Cup with Leeds United in 68. And... Uh, 
a Stoke reporter from uh, Birmingham City that you know a lot of players a lot, a lot of managers didn't rate uh, Greenough Revy didn't rate him because he felt he was a bit lazy but uh, he became a gem uh, for Stoke City and, and also carried on Manchester United being a gem he was you know in that uh, season he, he won the FA, FA Cup with uh, uh, Man United with certain uh, Lou Bakari uh, playing up front with him, so <laughs> with that Liverpool, Manchester United, FA Cup final in '77. There's quite a strong uh, Stoke connection, both uh, before and past, as it were. Yeah, I mean, it's just when you look at the players there that they had to sell. You say Greenoff, Hudson, uh, Pedic. And I sort of like they rip the heart out straight down the side, out of the spine on the side there, aren't they? And and like I say, it's no wonder that they then did go on to struggle the following season, which ended up with Tony yeah, leaving the club. Some of the players, yeah, some of the players thought that if Tony Warrington had stayed, they'd, they'd still stand a fighting chance of staying up. Oh, Terry Connery thinks that to this, to this day. Uh, it didn't need the disruption with George Easter and Alan Accord uh, left in charge, but, but well, sadly it, it didn't work out. And, and they had, in truth, lost too many players. I mean, Pedic was the breaking point. His relationship with Tony Warrington was uh, not maybe at times the best. Uh, <laughs> he can be a, a bit taciturn, can Mike, as, as, as modern day fans will know if they listen to him on Radio Stoke. You know, <laughs> he's never short of opinion. But uh, he, you know, he, again, it. Everton uh, uh, wanted it. Wanted him. I'm trying to think. Uh, it was the ex-Paul Vale manager who was uh, managing Everton at the time, so he, he didn't know. He didn't know quite a bit about Stoke City's any workings. Uh, who I can picture, but I can't remember exactly who it was. But uh, anyway, uh, Mike Patrick was, was on his way, and young Danny Bowers was there to replace him. I think Danny Bowers was injured, and it was. It was, frankly, a disaster. I'm, I'm glad, as I say, that when the stand, roof stand collapsed, the actual human disaster there wasn't as bad as it could have been. It, was, it would, have been, would have been awful if uh, the letting a crowd, if that, for example, if it was a day later and the, 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 the cup tie was stoke at home rather than away, we'd be talking about something completely different. But fortunately, we're not. But in terms of the club's finances in terms of the club's future it was a massive setback and it was one really I don't think the football club recovered from despite all the fun years with Bakari and all the rest of it I don't think the football club recovered until uh, Pulis and Coates uh, took us back into the Premier League because it is about top flight football and it's I look at some of the players and people put in all time 11s and I'm thinking you must be joking (laughs) you know (laughs) there there were players who were good and everybody liked but they were they were Tier three or tier two players not good enough to play anyway international football, and yet Stoke in that time in that period did have international footballers on their books. Although in case of Greenough, of course, as I say, he should have he should have he should have won caps earlier on. Doming the same, and Alan Hudson. It was absolutely criminal that he only won two England caps. But Mike Pedic was another, by the way, to be unlucky. I mean. Uh, he was picked under Joe Mercer, who was a caretaker manager before Revy uh, took charge from, uh, from uh, Alf Ramsey. And he had a nightmare at Hampton Park, scored an own goal, which wasn't really his fault. It's just one of those things that happens. And 
never quite got back into the team. I think they said he was, he was a poor tourist and he was a bit uh, not very well disciplined on the tour of Yugoslavia, which is, of course, his father's home country. And so all sorts of rumours and counter rumours, but he, he was good enough to play left back for England. Uh, certainly, um, if you think of that game at Wembley when they lost to, to Poland, you know. Pedic at fullback would have made a difference, and a better goalkeeper than Shilton would have made a difference too. Sadly, it wasn't to be. I mean, if Banks, for example, was in goal, England would have qualified for the 74 World Cup in Germany. But in West Germany, I, wouldn't, I don't have any doubt about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when it came for when it came about, obviously, what they were leaving Stoke in 77 was was it his choice? Was it their choice? Was it mutual? I'm afraid I was, I was one of those fans of the booth that Eddie Shanty what it what it what out uh, it was not that bad and I think a lot of fans I mean you, you talk to Stoke fans of the era there was more than there are, are, are hundred thousand Stoke Stokies at Wembley that day that you know the, there were forty thousand Chelsea fans 40,000 Stoke fans where you, you talk to everybody you think there's the whole city of Stoke on Trent was there and, 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 and looking back to seventy seven. And the way that what is fondly, fondly, fondly remembered now, and I hope in, in my uh, biography of, of what that I fondly remembered him, but as young teenage fans, patience snapped. And the one game against Leicester City, that was the turning point. That was, I mean, they, they, they played awfully, and Shilton had one of his more awful games. I, I, I remember what, what one tale. On a Sunday morning, my old man used to go up to one of the local pubs and me Heath and, and Alan Hudson liked to go in, in there. And, and a couple of, of, of lads collared uh, Hudson at the bar. He was, he was always quite happy to chat with convivial, convivial characters, you know. And he said, he was, how did you manage to lose that game? Because it, was, it wasn't the Leicester game, it was an early game against Coventry. And he said, one well, in two words, Peter Shilton. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> we shouldn't have that bloke in goal. We should have kept, you know, we should have kept uh, Farmer and all the rest of it. It just, uh, it, it was clearly a split there and he it, 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 it didn't like him. And say, Leicester, Warrington admits that he blamed Shilton for the defeat. It was, uh, he, he, he rolled the ball out to Alan Bloor. Uh, instead of booting it upfield, which is what he'd been instructed to do in a time wanted fashion. And of course, Bloor was, I would say, off asleep, but he wasn't expecting it. He was expecting the goalkeeper to pump the ball up the ground uh, it, it, it instead, but it didn't. And then the ball fell loose to to Leicester and uh, Frank Worthington was uh, waiting in the middle and uh, quite happily popped the ball into the net. That's how it remained 1-0. And I remember... The chance. I remember the bad feeling. I, I remember the booze as the team walked off, and I think it was only five years after uh, we'd won the League Cup. It's just extraordinary looking back. I mean, I suppose you mentioned Leicester City on the, uh, earlier on. It, it, it's similar, but it's not because there were not the financial worries. Leicester City have got no financial worries whatsoever. That's one of the baffling things about it. Stoke haven't, at the moment, any financial worries because of their owners. That's one of the baffling things about them at the moment. Uh, so to compare our plight now, our frustrations now with, uh, for example, what Tony Warrington took over in the 1960s, the early 1960s, uh, what he left in the late 70s it's totally different scenarios but uh, yes on the Monday morning 
uh, he said he, 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 he later it was later he said that he made his mind up there and then that he'd have, he'd have to go he was told to sleep on it on the following day this on the sunday he stoke were due to uh, have another home game and peter hewitt used to write one of his program wrote peter hewitt was the uh, stoke correspondent on the evening sentinel and, and, and they discussed the uh, this program notes for the program and uh, hewitt wrote, wrote wrote them up and then on the monday morning he he, he gets he gets a phone call from the club to say that uh, tony warrington was leaving now it, it was it was sold as his as his, as his decision. I don't think any of the players believe him. Dennis Smith certainly doesn't. I I I, I spoke to Dennis oh, two or three years ago now about it. Actually, at the time I was writing the book, and uh, he says no, there's no doubt about it. That the club decided to sack uh, Tony. He, he was very unhappy on the, on the Saturday evening after the game. He was very unhappy with Shilton, particularly Tony. What he thought of him, he's unhappy with the players for not bouncing back and uh, maybe snatching a draw or even winning the game but he, he thought he felt he was he was at the mood to, to carry on but the, the board felt otherwise and if you remember looking back and remembering the reaction of the fans it's no surprise i think they thought that uh, they had to get rid of uh, stoke's greatest manager and that and, the, and the, the sad irony of that is is that when stoke did go back into the Top flight into the, into the first division with uh, Alan Durban in charge. Alan Durban left after, very quickly after promotion. He went to Sunderland, and, and Stoke didn't call Tony Warrington back. You know, as a, he'd, he'd been at Crew, he had a reasonable, uh, unsuccessful time there. His manager did at Crew. He brought along. Terry Corroy to the club, and he we brought Bruce Grobbler over to uh, over to English football and that, and then uh, tipped off Bob, Bob Paisley, and uh, the rest was history as far as Liverpool were concerned. So you can see, even at that stage of his career, he was thinking he was spotting a player, and he loved a goalkeeper. That was the most important position on the field. But that, uh, I spoke to Peter about uh, what. His position was. You talked to me earlier about you know strikers or defenders of midfield. <laughs> the most important player on the football pitch to uh, Tony Warrington was the goalkeeper. The, you know the, the goalkeeper would, would you know forward might score you twenty twenty five goals a season. A goalkeeper would save you twenty twenty five goals a season. That's how he looked at it. He looked at what well, it is very important. And so in the in the eighties, it is curious because he was back in the director's box. He was welcomed back by the board, more or less the same directors who sacked him. As, as a prodigal son, and, and since then, there's always been a, a strong and warm relationship to Tony Walton and uh, those screwball idiots in the booth that had like me, of which I was one. <coughs> well, uh, we were to, we made we were made to eat our words. Yeah, he was like an associate director <laughs> until 1991, um, before sadly sort of passing away in sort of 1994. But I think there's this like. <laughs> Looking at some amazing stats, really. I mean, 25 years at Stoke, 16 years, nine months, 21 days as manager, the 12th longest reign by any manager of an English club uh, since World War Two. These uh, four semi-finals, two finals, a second division title, obviously a League Cup trophy, easily the most successful Stoke manager. 764 matches, 265 of them wins. 
just yeah, yeah, yeah. that was just amazing numbers when you when you like sit and just read them and then just try and take them in, isn't it? Yes, and until that fateful season, uh, a board that was uh, close to him, they, 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 that had faith in him. There, there were times where they might have got the jitters, you know. I think in a modern board would, um, but they didn't. And actually, to be fair, Stoke, Stoke's board at the time weren't the only ones here. Well. Uh, it wasn't an era where managers, where you'd have a, a Watford, for example, where managers getting sacked every six weeks. You know, it was certainly wasn't like that back then. But 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 you know, there was amazing loyalty to Tony Warrington, and it, it, was, it was deserved because uh, he rewarded the football club, he rewarded the fans, and he had a a great feeling and affinity for the fans, even the ones who criticised him. He called. Now, if you get backed at a, at a game, he, you know, he, he, he glibly turned them as committee of selectors. You know, a bit like you know, a cricket. Selectors, you know, they, they, even his, his fiercest critics, he just that's how he just see them. Well, you know, they want to select the team, actually, it doesn't matter, it was ultimately he did, but he, he, sort, of, he sort of brushed it all off. He, he did it, it didn't bother him, it didn't worry him. He just got on with it, he, he was his own man and he got on with his job, and he, he was certain of what he wanted to do. And he said, even, even though some of his players. Well, he admit he wasn't the greatest tacticians. It's quite simple tactics, but he allowed them to express themselves on the football pitch, especially the, you know, the, the better players, especially you know, the likes of Hudson, Greenoff, Conroy. Uh, you know, and the, and the like. He just he wanted them to go out and to just play the beautiful game. He, you know, he he called it the working man's ballet. He did believe in all that, but he believed it with a great deal of pragmatism. As I say, with Warrington's Wall, his great love of goalkeepers. It is a curious mixture to, uh, to many in the modern era, but in some respects, it doesn't make him that different than maybe the great coaches, you know, uh, of today. You know, yeah, very different style. But Guardiola likes a top goalkeeper. He won't, you know, he, he won't have a monkey, you know, between the sticks. You know, it's a bit different now in, in the terms of uh, the goalkeeper has to set up play but then Gordon Banks is very good at doing that it was one of the key elements of his game his distribution uh, with both with, both with his throwouts and what have you and it's, uh, and he understood there were different phases of the game different types of players and to get the best out of those players uh, as a man motivator there's nobody better than Tony Warrington yeah, I, I'll just I just end now. I've got this is one story that I found that really just sort of made me smile. Um, it was the signing of Jimmy McElroy. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. So apparently, did he, did he offer thirty thousand pounds to sign him? Uh, initially, they wanted thirty thousand pounds for him to sign him. He offered twenty seven and a half, and said, "Well, if we beat Walsall in our next game, your offer's dropping to twenty five. They went, obviously, so they went, um, Burnley said, like, we won't accept 27 and a half. They went and beat uh, beat Warsaw, and he joined for £25,000. <laughs> yeah, he did. Well, he was a canny negotiator in that way. Yeah, he, he had a similar problem with uh, signing banks from Leicester City. Uh, that's a separate story, but Bob Lord was... The Burnley chairman, and he was one of the more infamous chairmen of the era. Uh, only Doug Ellis of Aston Villa in later decades, the 70s and 80s, came close, deadly Doug. Bob Lord had a similar re reputation in the 60s. He was a tough man, a tough business negotiator, you know, lo lo local businessman made good. And to get one over on him, took some doing. 
But uh, Warrington managed to do that with McElroy because Walsall were in decent form at the time and uh, he sort of glibly you know, made, made this offer to Warrington to uh, reduce the fee to 25 grand. And he said no, but uh, what I can't remember what is. I think you got the figures right about the, the actual numbers. We said, well, well, what it is, you know, if we beat Walsall. Bob Lord didn't give him a prayer of beating Walsall uh, uh, away, even though, to all intents and purposes, it's a bit of a local derby, it's a Staffordshire derby. At any rate, Stone did go there and win, and uh, Bob Lord, out of frustration. He still tried to get out of it, but he, he agreed uh, to uh, sign McElroy for the lower fee. I mean, and by the way, there are Burnley fans here today of a certain age who are still upset by that uh, departure of Jimmy McElroy. They felt he should have stayed at the football club, but it's, it's the same. Bob Lord wanted to get rid of him, but a bit like you get with Daniel Levy at Spurs today, only to his price. And so it took a shrewd character to get around him. And uh, there's no shrewder character in business and uh, negotiating transfers than uh, Tony Warrington. The only man who came close was fortunately his chairman, Albert Henschel. So <laughs> between the two of them, they were, they were quite good operators. <laughs> um, and I suppose one last thing I just, just want to say to you, John, is do you rate Tony Warrington as the greatest Stoke City manager of all time so far? And if so, how far ahead of, say... I don't know, a lot, a lot of people one day would say Tony Pulis is probably the closest that comes to him. If is Tony Pulis the next line or how far away from like so for anyone who's watched Stoke in the last twenty years or so, younger supporter, seen everything Pulis has accomplished, how far ahead was Waddington of say Pulis? I don't think he was uh, much further ahead. I mean, the, the key difference is, and I think Tony, Tony himself will acknowledge this, is that uh, uh, what he won a major trophy with Stokes and he took them to Wembley and won. Sadly, and, uh, Tony Pulis took us to Wembley and uh, we didn't really play that well that day. We didn't, so we didn't turn up and, and for whatever reason and we 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 lost. I, mean, I, I saw the other day, you know, just before the Manchester Derby FA Cup final, there was they were showing you know, the, the winning goal from from that game because it, in many ways it set Manchester City on their way. And I'm sure the purists there'll be frustration, double frustration, because of course uh, when he was at Gillingham, he he lost a famous second division playoff final to Manchester City in, in the last knocking. So I think. Over the long term, what uh, Warrington did was uh, above Tony Pulis in that he was allowed to build, I would, I would argue, three teams. There was the team that got promoted, then the team that got to the FA Cup semi-finals, and finally the team that nearly won the title in, in 75. Now, they were consistently the same... Along the, along the way, they were the same players. One, Eric Skills is is is, is a key standout point of the of the FA Cup and League Cup teams. Uh, the, the back four was, was much the same, and indeed they were the until Alan Dodd came along, with that exception, put the same back four as the titles. So I don't think. Uh, Pulis was given a chance to be able to do that. He got them promoted. He did rebuild the team to 
former call that got to that FA Cup final in 2011. But I would say he is uh, uh, behind Tony Warrington. And I, I looking at historically now, <clears throat> looking at, at, the, at the record, and it's a very difficult era to assess, especially as I never, obviously never saw a game. But probably I put Bob McGrory ahead of Tony Pulis, not despite uh, him losing uh, Matthews to Blackpool in, in that infamous season. Mm-hmm. McGrory had the advantage, obviously, being an ex-Stoke player. But uh, I think that from the older generation of fans, when I was a kid growing up, I think he, he got some unfair stick. I mean, he, 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 he missed out on the title. It was a period in charge interrupted by war. Uh, Stoke with Frank Sue, the captain, in 38-39, were a decent side. They had two or three England internationals, obviously Matthews and Steele uh, among them. So it's very difficult to assess across the areas, as you know. It's almost... In a way, pointless, you know. But I think I, I think in my lifetime, certainly I put one above Pulis. But I very much appreciate what Tony Pulis did for the club, uh, as, as, as as well as Tony Waddington. And, and to be honest, I, I was disappointed that Tony left in rather different circumstances to Wado. And I understand why Wado left, as I say. I, I admit I was one of those recalcitrant teenage fans yelling. From uh, in frustration from from the crowd and looking back, I think what an idiot. Twenty years ago, but yeah, I don't think there was quite that with Pulis. Yes, there was noise on social media. There was idiots making comments on Twitter ten years ago, let alone now. But I, I don't think there was quite the pressure to get rid, except that people wanted the beautiful game. They wanted more. Uh, Flowing football. There was the mantra: the Atalanta Kermishly Charlton manager, be careful what you wish for. And I think for two, three years under Hughes, that we did play football. We did play better football. But the one key thing about that, and I've discussed this. Dennis Smith had discussed it. He he asked me about Stephen Anzonzi after a game. He hadn't been to the game. He'd been doing his uh, Premier League duties or his PGMOL duties where he sets his referees in the match. I think he'd be down at Villa Park uh, that day. And he said to me, how did Ian Zonzi play? And I said, well, played all right. He played a bit in and out. He said, oh, that's a problem. But, uh, he, said, he says, Stephen Zonzi frustrates me. He said, because he, he when he's on song, he's one of the best players, if not the best player I've ever seen play football. I says, really? He says, yeah. But he says, I said, he, and he said to Rodgers, who do you think is the best player of the team? I said, well, other than Zonzi or... I said, and I shakily said to him, "What about Glenn Whelan?" You know, the, uh, he said, "He said, well, I'll tell you now. If any those people who don't rate Glenn Whelan don't know anything about football, it was straightforward." He says, "Whelan is the glue on that football team." And and, and, the, thing, and the thing was that Pulis said the same thing. He wanted to get rid of him. He kept wanting to get rid of him, but, but he kept up in his game, and he and he, and, he, and, he, uh, and uh, was vital. And I think when Whelan left and Donny Waters left. We lost characters. We lost. We lost. We lost those mainstay characters in the in the in the, in the football club. And uh, whether Mark Hughes can be blamed for that or someone else, I don't know. But certainly those staples in the team they were gone. And I think wanted. I know wanted knew the importance of just keeping your staple players, keeping your 
players look like journeymen. People, Eric Steele is another example. You know, not somebody who does the spectacular, but just does the necessary work. Uh, I think, unfortunately, modern day Stoke lost that in a way that the club of the 70s that got relegated didn't because, again, the circumstances were different and we had to sell. Otherwise, the club would fold. It was, it was, it was that straightforward. And, uh, uh, so I think these, this can be debated forever, but, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would, I would rank Water number one, Tony Warrington number one, McGrory two, and Pulis three. And then I, I make a shout out for McCory at four, even though we never managed us in the top flight. But I think if he had the chance, if he had to go to Celtic, maybe he would have got us in the top flight and who, who knows. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, thank you for your time, John. It's been an absolute honour. Um, it's been really sort of eye-opening for myself as well. So, you know, see, I was only born in the mid-80s, late 80s, so didn't see any of this firsthand. So it's well, lovely to sort of get a feel of what it was like. Um, but, yeah, thank you for your time. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to share the memories, but it's also nice... To look back, I'm, do, I'm doing another project for pitch publishing on England in the 1930s, and obviously there's nobody around who can remember that. And the good thing is, actually, writing about Franklin, I did speak to Ron Atkinson about it, and that was quite funny. Recording him and recording him talking about Tony Warrington uh, and that, and maybe wish I'd actually spoken to him for the water biography, but I didn't. You know, it's one of, the, one of those things. But it is, yeah, it is nice to reminisce. It is nice to go back through. Uh, the history and to to look back, but as I say, I I you know football's not even my main sport. My main sport sport is athletics, and you can never and it's easier in athletics. You can see the times, and you can you can assess the greatest athletes. You can look to Jesse Owens to use say Bolt two different types, but Bolt is somebody I've seen live. You know, I and Jesse Owens obviously not yet to me they're they're equals and, and you can't place them apart. The football club, it's a bit more emotional because it's the football, it's, it's, it's a team you support. But again, it's very, very different. You know, Bob McGrory had different challenges than Tony Warrington, had different challenges than Tony Pulis, but uh, all three great managers. So, anyway, anyway, it's nice talking to you. It's nice having a chat. Yeah, and, and um, no doubt we'll speak again, hopefully, about maybe not Neil Frank in, in the future. Yeah, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I was just, I was actually just checking through that this morning. <laughs> I, I, I realised quite a bit, I forgot. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. <laughs> but yes, but yeah, ple- pleasure to speak to you, John. And um, yeah, I'm sure our listeners will have loved and really enjoyed this. So thank you for your time. Okay, thanks, thanks, Dan. Thank you. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.